Welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Debate Podcast, where consensus is optional, but proof of thought is required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion is Blockchain Analysis Companies Are Bad for Bitcoin. Blockchain analysis companies are effectively on-chain detectives. They help exchanges and other financial institutions detect and monitor money laundering activities and therefore stay in compliance. They also help law enforcement do financial investigations. But their tools may also be useful for repressive regimes in spying on financial behavior of their citizens in hopes of crushing political dissidents. Today's debaters include someone from the Human Rights Foundation who is very passionate about Bitcoin's financial liberating costs, and someone that started one of the largest blockchain analysis companies who believes their tools help Bitcoin and what it stands for. If you're into crypto and like to hear two sides of the story, be sure to also check out our previous episodes. We featured some of the best known thinkers in the crypto space. If you would like to debate or want to nominate someone, please DM me at BlockDebate on Twitter. Please note that nothing in our podcast should be construed as financial advice. I hope you enjoy listening to this debate. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the debate. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion, blockchain analysis companies are bad for Bitcoin. To my metaphorical left is Alex Gladstein arguing for the motion. He agrees that blockchain analysis companies are bad for Bitcoin. To my metaphorical right is Dave Jeevans arguing against the motion. He disagrees that blockchain analysis companies are bad for Bitcoin. Alex and Dave, I'm super excited to have you join the show. Welcome. Hello, Richard. Hello. Here's a bio for the two debaters. Alex is Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. He has also served as Vice President of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum since its inception in 2009. In his work, Alex has connected hundreds of dissidents and civil society groups with business leaders, technologists, journalists, philanthropists, policymakers, and artists to promote free and open societies. He co-authored The Little Bitcoin Book in 2019. Dave is the founder and CEO of CypherTrace, one of the big three blockchain analysis companies. Previously, David had spent decades building network security companies with multiple exits. A few interesting facts. In the 90s, Dave attended monthly cypherpunk meetups in Palo Alto. He also hired Nick Zabo to help with Iron Key, which is one of Dave's previous businesses, a secure USB product. We normally have three rounds, opening statements, host questions, and audience questions. Currently, our Twitter poll shows that 70% disagree with the motion. That means 70% disagree that blockchain analysis firms are bad for Bitcoin. After the release of this recording, we'll also have a post-debate poll. Between the two polls, the debater with a bigger change in percentage votes in his or her favor wins the debate. Okay, Alex, please go ahead and get started with your opening statement. Thank you for having me on. And Dave, thanks for being willing to wrestle here. Um, I I think it's important that we have this conversation. So obviously I'm coming at this from the perspective of being a human rights advocate and being someone who sees value in Bitcoin for what it can mean as a tool for freedom for people, not necessarily as an investment, although that's sort of intertwined, uh, and, and not as a uh, you know new exciting shiny object for Wall Street, 
but as a true parallel economy for the, the people of the world. And that's why I believe that blockchain analysis companies are bad for Bitcoin. Um, I actually would suggest that people call blockchain analysis companies financial surveillance companies, because that's what they do. And that way we can have like an honest conversation about this industry. So about the financial surveillance industry, the reason why financial surveillance companies are bad for Bitcoin is because this is a long-term game. There was a stunning article in The Atlantic that came out today that I really suggest everybody listening reads. And the title is, China is what Orwell feared. And the subtitle is, Xi Jinping is using artificial intelligence to enhance his government's totalitarian control, and he's exporting this technology to regimes around the world. And this uh, trend, this trend in governments basically being able to become closer to, to omniscient, essentially, to, to sort of all-knowing and all-seeing through technology, is, is what Bitcoin is a hedge against. In my mind, in, in the way that I, I see Bitcoin functioning around the world, Bitcoin is a way to challenge this trend of increasing state surveillance. It can fight Big Brother. It can fight surveillance capitalism. And anything that makes Bitcoin less private or effective is bad for Bitcoin. So from a global sense, companies like Dave's, uh, you know, they can operate in democracies. They can operate in dictatorships. About 4.3 billion people in the world operate in a dictatorship. Um, and whether or not Dave's company would, would work with those governments, I'm sure his competitors will. So there's some sur financial surveillance company that's going to be willing to work for a dictator and is going to be willing to punish human rights activists and dissidents. And I think that that is obviously bad for Bitcoin. We, we want Bitcoin to be uh, you know, as private as possible and as effective as a human rights tool as possible for folks. And people building this sort of like KYC compliance government, you know, uh, friendly uh, kind of Bitcoin ecosystem are are bad for Bitcoin. I mean, they're, they're basically hurting one of its most important traits, which is its, its ability to be used as a parallel economy. Uh, even, con even in the United States, even in a democracy like the US, I, I really feel like you should have, a, you should need constitutionally a warrant to spy on my financial transactions, data and activity. I realize we do have the Bank Secrecy Act, but amounts under $10,000 are, are technically supposed to be private between me and my, my financial institution. They're not supposed to be, that information is not supposed to be given to the government. But if Dave and financial surveillance companies get their way, even that gets washed away. And even these little micro transactions, anything that's done on the blockchain becomes fair game for the NSA or the US government, uh, or, or I would argue much worse dictatorships to learn about. And finally, I, I would just want to make the point that financial surveillance companies are pretty useless unless they can pair ad Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency addresses uh, to, ident to identities. And, and that's not super easy to do. And you basically have to do that by collaborating with a financial institution, like, like for example, a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, if I just send Bitcoin to my friend, I mean, there's no chance Dave's going to figure that out. That's not, that's not decipherable. Um, but if I buy Bitcoin on Coinbase and I've KYC'd with Coinbase and I've given them all my information, 
uh, and then I withdraw to an address. Okay, now Coinbase knows that that's mine, and then that's information um, that that companies that are in the financial surveillance industry can have. Um, Coinbase uses uh, you know these different data sets from those companies to further enhance its ability to know what's going on. And they will ultimately, uh, as they onboard a lot of users, uh, unfortunately, they'll start sort of cracking down on like what's sort of considered bad activity. And, you know, you might be able to make an argument that in the United States, uh, reasonable people can figure out what's bad activity. But the fact is, most people don't live in the United States. There are billions of people who live under dictatorships where um, you know, the government is basically going to say bad activity is anything that a dissident or an activist is going to do. So again, I, 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 just to conclude the opening statement, uh, I think that anything that makes Bitcoin less private or effective, which financial surveillance companies do, is bad for Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is a tool of human rights, and we need to oppose um, financial surveillance companies by building technology that makes them ineffective. It's, it's really our only hope because as long as they can make a living doing what they're doing, they're going to do it. So that's how I'll start. Okay, great. Sounds pretty convincing to me. <laughs> so Dave, I think you got your hands full. Please start with your opening statement. Thank you, Alex. I'm going to take the opposing view, which is I will argue that Bitcoin analytics are crucial to the survival of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I've got three points to make on this. And then I look forward to the debate. Tomorrow, if Bitcoin somehow became untraceable, either through technological means or everybody in the public sphere and the commercial sphere gave up, within six to eight months, at least 30 countries would ban cryptocurrencies, which would represent 95% of Bitcoin trading volume. Bitcoin would crash from $10,000 to $1.00. And it would be relegated to jurisdictions with limited access to fiat payments, rendering Bitcoin virtually useless. Point number two, Bitcoin analytics actually help the underbanked in repressive regimes. I'd like to discuss this point in the question and answer. Many regimes uh, are receiving aid across the world. This has a lot of corruption in it. If we can use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to deliver aid directly to the organizations in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, to deliver that aid, to be able to trace it, to make sure that the aid is delivered to the organizations and individuals that it's designated to and is not appropriated by repressive regimes and is not appropriated by corrupt politicians, this is viewed by many in the human rights and the aid community as a very strong positive. Point number three, Bitcoin analytics do not identify individuals. So if you've ever used a Bitcoin analytic tool, you will know that it does not identify individuals. It does not allow targeting of individuals. What it does is it empowers individuals to be able to get legal recourse if their funds are stolen, if they were victims of fraud. It identifies where funds were sent to as far as a company or a criminal agency. It does not provide individual identifying information. It does not contain personally identifiable information. This is a uh, just something that people maybe don't understand about Bitcoin analytics. 
Thank you. Okay, Alex, we can either have you respond directly to what Dave is saying, or I'm happy to start round two, where I will start asking some questions. It's your call. Yeah, I'd love to just briefly respond to his three points, if that's okay. Okay, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so for the first point, I'm not sure if this is backed by historical evidence. So you say that, you know, if we didn't have analytics, then governments would ban Bitcoin. You said at least 30 countries would ban Bitcoin and the price would crash. Um, so in 2017, the world's largest country banned its citizens from basically buying Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. I'm talking about China, of course, in October 2017. Um because they, you know, one of the one of the theories was they 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 didn't they weren't comfortable with it. They didn't know what was going on inside Bitcoin. Um, so what happened? Well, uh, the ban was not effective. It was unenforceable. They had to walk it back to the point where now Bitcoin is now legally protected property in China, and the price doubled. So I have I just don't see history bearing this out that if we, if we could no longer have analytics that Bitcoin's price would crash. I don't I don't see any history on that one. No evidence on that one. Number two, that Bitcoin analytics help the underbanked and authoritarian regimes. You're basically saying that we could use Bitcoin if it was really traceable to deliver aid. Um, I mean, I would say that, like, I agree that Bitcoin could be used in foreign. I've even written about this, that Bitcoin could be a really effective foreign aid tool to do peer to peer foreign aid, as opposed to having to go through third party organizations like the Red Cross, which spend a lot of money on you know, unfortunately, bureaucracy, uh, you know, you could just donate directly to the person in need. But you don't need mass surveillance and de-anonymization of users to do that. You can you can just pick up the phone and call the person and, hey, did you get it okay? I mean, you can, you as the sender, you know, you're, you're going to know who what the receiver's address is and you're going to see the coins go, at least on Bitcoin. There's no need to hire a third-party company to spy on that activity. So I, I just fail to see how this is going to be helpful. Um, if anything, it, it, again, it's super dangerous for authoritarian regimes to have uh, financial surveillance capabilities um, as they do in China today. That's that's the whole point of Bitcoin is that is that we can provide a system in a world where they don't have those capabilities, where there's really nothing they can do. Uh, third point, Bitcoin analytics don't identify individuals. So you say that like, it empowers individuals. Well, I, maybe in this round two, I'd love to hear Dave talk about how it works uh, in in a company or a government using Dave's services to help ID where funds were sent to um, in a criminal act, for example, as he mentioned. I'd love to hear him talk through that and explain how a government would even know if Bitcoin analytics don't identify individuals then how does anybody know what address is criminal and what address is legitimate? I'd love to hear him explain that. Okay, great. So Dave, you can go ahead and follow up with Alex's point now too, if you want. So let me take the last one first, which is um, identification of individuals and how blockchain analytics actually work. Uh, so there is no personal identifiable information collected in blockchain analytics uh, I think CypherTrace, as well as I'm sure most of the other companies out there, do not collect information from their customers, do not collect information about individuals. We have no names, no phone numbers, any of that information, no account numbers or any of that. It's really about looking at where funds flow to and where funds came from. 
Now, how do you identify criminal activity? Many ways to do this. Um, sometimes it's reported. So someone says, hey, my stuff got stolen. And that is widely accepted in the Bitcoin community. There are quite a number of groups that uh, operate blacklists that are operated by most of exchanges. They engage with them to uh, blacklist funds, to freeze them, et cetera. There's also the surveillance of the criminal marketplaces. So the money laundering services, darknet markets, the major vendors in that space, ransomware vendors, who's doing the ransomware, ransomware operators, where's that data going to, where are the funds flowing to, who's consolidating that information. So the, the information is really about getting information from uh, the, the internet, getting information from private sources that will report fraud, theft, et cetera. So helping individuals and companies who've been defrauded, they could be exchanges, they could be individuals, they could be groups of companies or groups of individuals, looking at ransomware feeds and, and investigating that and looking at dark markets where you've got uh, weapons being sold and bought, you've got uh, bank accounts being bought and sold, you've got credit card information dumps being bought and sold. Uh, you've got child exploitation information. Right, right. Yeah, Dave, Dave, totally. I got it. So so you would, you, you're just maintaining that like, essentially when you work with a company, for example, an exchange or a government, they're basically like, hey, Cypher Trace or Dave, um, here's an address, uh, you know, so that you're, you're basically saying they don't give you a name or any information about the person they're asking you to look into. Um, okay, well, you know, to me, that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of like a paper tiger, like, like, it doesn't really matter to a human rights activist who's being de-anonymized, de whether or not it's a it's a financial surveillance company doing it or a financial surveillance company working in tandem with the government. I mean, you, you are you're an arm of whoever's asking you to carry out these orders. So I don't really think you can hide behind the fact that you're claiming you only do part of the procedure, especially because there are uh, financial surveillance companies that do do the whole kit and caboodle. Maybe not yours, um, but I can assure you the ones in China and Russia and all these dictatorships do our full service de-anonymization clinics. Um, maybe you guys are, you know, feel like you're more moral um, or you operate under a different rule set because you're in a democracy. Um, but I can assure you that that's not going to be the case for your brethren abroad, unfortunately. I can't answer for people around the world who are doing whatever they're doing. I can only answer for, you know, the overall industry and what we're doing. But yes, you can certainly tie individual identification. So let's say you're a government and you have access to all of the banking information at every bank. You're an authoritarian government. You have every access to every credit card transaction, every PayPal transaction, every wire transfer, every um, internet communication. I mean, Tracing Bitcoin is your last worry. Well, could we actually, for the listeners, could you, let's just use the Twitter, the recent Twitter uh, scam as an example. So let's say you're on this case. Uh, you guys have been, you know, Twitter calls you and says, hey, you know, we, we, we want to know where these coins are going. Um, I mean, I find it hard to believe that the only thing you guys are going to do is, you know, aren't, aren't, so let's say you've, you, 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 by the way, Twitter doesn't. 
Twitter doesn't care where the coins are going. You know that, right? Like they only care about how their APIs are secure. Whatever. Let's just use it as an example. Um, maybe uh, the person who sent the coins mistakenly cares. Somebody hires you or someone like you, right? So you've identified where the coins went. I mean, is it really useful for you to go back to your client and say, yeah, here, it's at this address. I mean, I feel like they're going to want to know more than that. They're going to want to know, is that address a Binance address? Is it is it attached to an individual? So tell me, how do you connect the pieces? Who does that? Yeah, well, we'll tell them if it's at a certain exchange or... Yeah, but how, how, but you, you can't know that without without violating what you said before, that you don't know anything about the, 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 the who owns these addresses. Either you do or you don't. No, there's a difference between knowing if you bought your mattress at Target or if you know your name, address, and how much you paid at Target, there's a difference, Alex. There's a difference. Did you did 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 Target process a credit card transaction from you, or is there you know do we know broadly in a public space that you purchased a mattress, three cans of Oreos, and some chips? at Target when you went there and therefore you're like at risk of heart disease. There is a real difference. So what we can tell you is, you know what? That stuff was bought at Target. That's it. And if you want to go and follow due legal process, which is globally acknowledged and, and is obviously different in every country, then you have the right to go do so. So for example, we get people every day who say, man, my Bitcoin got ripped off. My mom's savings, my savings, et cetera, are there. I think there's a human right, basically, to be able to get your stuff processed and be able to see if there's any legal diligence that can be done. Now, it follows all due diligence. Okay, hold on, hold on. I, I appreciate the point you're making. but we, So how do you know that the address belongs to Binance? How would CypherTrace know? Do you have a list where you're like, here are all the address? I mean, I, I just want to find out like what... How are you pairing an address to to an institution that owns that address? I don't understand. If, if you don't know anything about that, how do you do that? Well, we do that through our own analytic processes where we are able to look at addresses that we know belong, and then we put them into various algorithms to, to correlate them and come up with an extremely high probability rate that they are. Same with smart contracts. You can look at smart contracts and go, okay, well, these smart contracts, 98% of them from a certain exchange go through this contract, et cetera. So there's lots of different algorithms that are built around, you know, for example, peeling transactions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of technology and a lot of analysis goes into it to create high rates of positivity with low false positives. But again, it does not identify individuals. It identifies where their money went to if they got defrauded, scammed. Okay, so you're saying your services could only be useful in in the case that someone uh, has taken something like Bitcoin and and withdrawn it at a at a at a at, an ex- at a company or an institution. You you guys are completely useless if it's just peer to peer stuff. Is that something you're willing to say? I wouldn't say it's useless, but we certainly don't focus on it. I mean, we provide no analytics that would identify an individual or a cluster of things. I mean, we could say, I mean, anyone can do a cluster analysis and say all these addresses belong to a certain. Right. But, so, but you do admit that your company has value. Like, like, let's just pretend with this Twitter thing, if you guys were the ones that cracked the case, uh, it would be, let's say some exchange, someone hired uh 
you and an exchange to figure out what happened. And you guys figured out that this particular address, you wove through all the, the movements and motions of the Bitcoin. And you, you, you settled that it, that it arrived at Binance's- Yeah, you can um, find it on our blog. Right, exactly. That's what I'm hinting at. So, so you can claim that you don't, I mean, you can kind of have this claim Okay, I understand that you don't de-identify, you don't de-anonymize anyone, but right. but you are you are you without you the process couldn't happen. Like all all that Binance has to do is get on the phone with you or email you or whatever, however you guys communicate, and they have to they have to see that you you've hey that address that came in at twelve thirty p.m. yesterday with that much Bitcoin, yeah, that's like this criminal, and then Binance. You know, gets to decide what to do. Do we freeze that person's we account? We don't whatever. do any of that. You're making assumptions. We no, don't. No, no, no. I'm saying Binance does that, but but they, they can't do that without you. Your your value prop is precisely helping them identify that person. There's no. You can't like get out of this. You're part of that process. You can say that your hands are tied, but if an exchange is a subscriber to CipherTrace, then they check every transaction coming in and out. We will give them a risk score about, do you want to look at it or not? And if we say this is coming from somebody who had all their Bitcoin stolen, uh -huh. we will give them a risk score and they will go, it'll get flagged. It'll go into their compliance department. Then their compliance department will have a team of people who will go look at it and say, oh, this is, looks like it's been reported as stolen. Let's look at it. Maybe we should choose to freeze the account and ask the account holder what's going on. Why are they receiving stolen funds? And then it gives the opportunity for the person who had their funds stolen to work with law enforcement in their country and wherever Binance, which division they're working with or whoever the exchange is, to subpoena records. And the law enforcement goes through its usual legal lengthy process to go through all of the legal process, get a a grand jury to issue a subpoena that all goes through law enforcement. The customer doesn't know it. We don't know it. And law enforcement go through it and figure out, okay, this is the KYC of that person. We have nothing to do with that. They, we just give them like- Right, so in the case of the Twitter scam, the guy posted, or the girl, whoever it was, I guess we don't know yet uh, entirely, but they posted an address, okay? So like we all saw that like a bunch of Bitcoin went in there. And then, you know, we saw later, thanks to companies like you, right, um, or people at home who are doing what you're doing, but just in an open source way, um, that, oh, well, they, they tried to kind of mix some of it, but it sort of ended up at this at this address, at this, at this exchange. So yeah. you're basically saying that's the value prop of your company is helping, helping people trace funds. So all I'm saying is that when you well, claim in your but third- We do a lot of things, but that's certainly one of them, yeah. Well, when you, the, your whole third point was that Bitcoin analytics companies or financial surveillance companies don't identify individuals. Uh, I, 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 think that, I think that's a paper tiger. I think you help identify individuals because without you, if you're to be believed, then exchanges and people pursuing their lost funds would not be able to identify the individuals. You play they a crucial don't part the in identifying. They don't remember, Alex, that they don't know the individuals either, right? So the exchange knows their individual customers. Well, the exchange, they of know course, right? they have KYC'd out the ass. They have every, well, you, have, yeah. you, tried, you tried to sign up with Coinbase or Square, they, they ask you for your driver's license. So whoever has that account at Coinbase, oh, they, they know everything about that person. So all they How need to do is- How many have them. you signed up for? How many what? How many exchanges have you signed up for? Uh, more than one. 
I'll put it that way. Okay, good. Well, mine is more than 200, 300, or 400. So I have some data on it. Um, but yes, I agree with you. But they understand who you are. Wait, what do you, what do you, are you debating that they don't collect KYC information? I mean, of course I, they do. I'm just saying that the variation is quite wild around the world. But so they understand who you are. All we're saying is that it's at this exchange, you know, go through d- legal process. If you want to get your funds recovered, Here's who the person is to call. We're providing a phone book. Did the Yellow Pages put the you know phone companies at jeopardy? I don't think so. We're just basically saying, here's where you go to apply due legal process to get your funds back or to deal with a criminal investigation. Gentlemen, I think that there's a bigger, more fundamental issue that should probably be debated here. I think what we can probably agree on here is that CypherTrace and these other financial analysis, blockchain analysis companies basically provide some kind of tool that ends up being used by certain regimes or institutions to de-anonymize. Now, some companies might do a lot of de-anonymization on behalf of their clients. Some blockchain analysis companies do very little, which seems to be the case for CypherTrace here. But I think the bigger question here is, why is de-anonymization bad? Now, I myself can sort of understand both sides of the argument, but governments crack down child pornographers, human traffickers, and so on and so forth, and they really can use the help of the anonymization tools. On the other hand, you also have regimes that will suppress dissidents, that will that will put put a certain people in jail when they are fighting for democracy in these countries, and they rely on the anonymization tools. So it sounds like it's a double-edged sword. But I think the bigger debate here isn't necessarily about whether the blockchain analysis tool is a piece of puzzle, it's a piece in this big puzzle of de-anonymization, but rather the de-anonymization effort itself, the pros and cons associated with it, how do we see whether the pros outweigh the cons or vice versa? Is this something you guys want to engage in? My view on it is, you know, I'm an ex-cypherpunk. I got into digital currencies in 99. I got interested in 2000. I met the DigiCash guys, the eGold guys, you know, the zero knowledge folks who, you know, are long gone, but their technology lives on in Zcash. I've been involved in this space for some time. I got into Bitcoin in 2011. I'm a privacy advocate. But on the other hand, there's the reality of it, which is, you know, governments have figured it out and they have a long history of applying financial investigation and financial tracking. This is not new. It goes back not only centuries. It doesn't go back to the Renaissance, which we can talk about in the Medici and all their records. It goes back over 2000 years. So this is not new. What we want to make sure is that this technology preserves as much privacy as possible, but gives us the ability to comply with regulations and help people who have who have been defrauded. That's my view on it. Yeah. Well, when you when you lay it out like that, saying, hey, we should have as much privacy as possible and then use the word but, you know, we're all supposed to be trained to ignore everything you said before the word but, right? So um, the 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 reality is that compliance is is gonna mean that the government wants a backdoor into every trend and every transaction. That's their ultimate what what their goal is, and you guys are a tool for them getting there. Um, you <clears throat> basically say that uh, you, you know, governments have figured it out. We should sort of give up 
Um, I, I disagree. I think actually they have a really hard time figuring out what's going on in, in Bitcoin. I, I'll just cite a recent example in Russia. Uh, the opposition movement, the democracy movement in Russia, which is a dictatorship ruled by Vladimir Putin, um, who's been in power for more than 20 years and relentlessly jails activists and dissidents, the opposition movement has started to collect funds using Bitcoin. And the government has actually said in public that they have a hard time um, figuring out what's going on with Bitcoin. They, they can't figure out exactly what, you know, w where the funds are that are being donated to Navalny and then the other opposition activists. And this is such a powerful uh, uh, piece of evidence. This is such a powerful reality that it actually makes uh, the legacy system uh, better for activists because the, the, the government basically says, hey, um, if we crack down on, the, on their bank accounts and on their legacy financial products, uh, and their traditional access, then they're just going to go and use Bitcoin and we'll have no clue what's going to, we'll, we'll have no clue what's going on there. So they've actually started to like loosen their general financial restrictions on activists and dissidents. So the fact that Bitcoin makes it harder for governments to understand what's going on is, is so important. It's like the thing we need to preserve. And in a hundred years, it's what's going to matter. We, we, you know, compliance and onboarding people to Bitcoin and None of that stuff's going to matter. Eventually, Bitcoin will win out. It has number go up technology. It's a scarce asset that people are going to need in the future. Um, it doesn't need any marketing. It doesn't need your help. It doesn't need the help of chain analysis companies. It's that that's, it doesn't. In a hundred years, Bitcoin will be around and it'll be very powerful, and it won't need anyone's help to get there. It'll it'll be valuable because it's the only decentralized digital scarce asset in the world, and less than one percent of humans know about it now, and its value is eleven thousand dollars. So. You know, what's it going to be like when 50% of the world knows about it? I think a lot more powerful than that. And anything that's going to damage Bitcoin's uh, privacy or ability to act as this sort of parallel economy, I think is bad for Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's 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 my, my belief. Yeah, I mean, Alex, I, I, you look, I agree with you, but you are putting words into my mouth. I didn't say things like. Uh, you know, we want to kowtow to governments or anything like that. You said that. So that I didn't say that. Which, so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Which part? Oh. You said uh, several statements that I didn't say. So that's okay. But just, you know, you need to understand my perspective on this, which is, you know, I can be pro pro privacy or, you know what, here's what I could do. I could, I had to make a decision, which was government regulations coming down and it's driven by old school bankers. So I have two choices, do nothing and let them go do whatever they want to do or get engaged and try to be a bridge between the crypto community and what we want to achieve and the regulations where they control 99.9% .9 of the funds transfer and the armies and the cops around the world. And so I chose to step into that breach which is I'll stand up for it and say, you know, I'll take it. So let's get involved with the regulators. Let's try to teach them that the stuff that they're doing around cryptocurrency regulation is not helpful. It's not the right way. There's way better ways to do this that preserve privacy, that preserve your mission, which is stopping counter, you know, stopping terrorist financing, weapons of mass destruction, anti-money laundering, child pornography, all that stuff. We can affect that in ways that don't map to the way that you're doing it. 
So that's that's what we've done is try to step into that breach. Uh, trust me, it's not the most profitable way to do it. Um, but it is how we've looked at it at CypherTrace, which is let's step into the breach and try to be a bridge between what's happening around the world with regulation and what we want to achieve in crypto. Right. But there's another option. You could just not do any financial surveillance or you could devote your career to building privacy technology that protects individuals. I mean, it's not like sure. there's not, yeah. it's not like they, you, you, there are other options for you guys. You don't have to. There's a lot of no privacy technologies. We work every week with the team at Zcash. We work every week or two with the team on Monero. We're working with these guys. We, you know, yeah, sure. But I mean, at the end of the day, if fiat rails get cut off to cryptocurrency, then the whole thing's largely done. We are not at a point where we have a viable cryptocurrency economy where I can pay my mortgage, my car uh, insurance or anything else in crypto. One day, maybe we'll get there. That's great. But right now we're not. Fiat conversion rails are important. They're crucial to cryptocurrency being viable. And somebody's got to like step in and help build, bridge that gap because otherwise we're going to get trampled yeah. by the regulators. So that's a great point. I actually want to uh, react to that. Um, this is what everybody in this industry says in the blockchain analysis, chain analysis, financial surveillance, whatever you want to call it. They say like without us, you know, you know, the, the activity would wither and die. The reality is around the world. Bitcoin is a parallel economy. It's 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 a shadow economy. It's people are using this in a peer-to-peer -peer way completely outside the existing financial system. The only reason you'd want to use Bitcoin today, for example, for remittances, is if you didn't have a bank account or didn't want to deal with the financial system. So the 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 idea that like we need blockchain companies so that we can be compliant and use Bitcoin. I, I think falls apart. I mean, the whole point of using Bitcoin is that we're going around this. What you're saying is true for people who want to invest in Bitcoin as a speculative store of value to which, you know what, like they don't really matter. That's not really the point of Bitcoin. Um, yes, people, I think, will get rich, of course, over time off this asset because it's so valuable. But it's it's ideological reason for existing is not to get Wall Street rich. It's in fact, it's to overthrow Wall Street and to overthrow government control over money. I mean, this is a very radical technology that certainly doesn't need a compliance department. Uh, th this is this is a technology that allows people to go around authoritarianism and repression, and people will find a way. Just just because it's it's going to be harder for people to to sell Bitcoin into fiat if, for example, the U.S. government banned it outright. I mean, I, I mean, have you seen how the war on drugs has worked? There would be all kinds of amazing black markets in the United States for the the sale and the purchasing uh, of Bitcoin just as they were in China during that one month when it was illegal, just as there were for years in India when the government threatened to ban it entirely until recently the Supreme Court actually said, no, you can't do that. So we have on record large governments trying to ban the thing and failing. So I just think that's a bad argument that you know, if you guys don't exist, like it would fail. I, I, I think it actually, Bitcoin exists to help overthrow the current financial regime, not to be nice and play well nice with it. Look, I'm 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 with you, but I didn't see you in 1995 when Digicash and eCash were trying to get going, and they had relationships with Mark Twain Bank in the United States and Deutsche Bank in Europe, and they were trying to get electronic cash to get funded by banks so that you could get cash in and cash out, right? So yeah, that what happened. Why did they fail? 
because the banks wouldn't adopt it. One of the fundamental innovations of Bitcoin, uh, other than the blockchain and the reward system that was created by the mining infrastructure, absolute freaking genius, right? And the blockchain, absolute genius, was the innovation around exchanges, which creates a distributed environment to interact with fiat currencies. So if you could not buy cryptocurrency and you could not sell cryptocurrency, we would be still sitting here with Hal Finney's hobby project, right? Like what happened and what changed was that the distributed nature of exchanges allowed the exchange of monetary instruments from fiat into cryptocurrency. There would be no Bitcoin is $10,000. There would be no Bitcoins at dollar. There would be no Bitcoins 11. So the integration of the financial infrastructure into Bitcoin is crucial for it to actually function. This is, it's actually kind of fitting that you would you would point out the example of the uh, eCash projects in the 1990s. And you're right, I wasn't around for that, but I, I do know why they failed. And you're right, they couldn't get the banks to agree. Banks and governments are never going to agree entirely with what Bitcoin presents. This is a confiscation resistant, censorship resistant, permissionless, global, uh, borderless, digitally scarce asset that can't be manipulated or controlled. Why would they ever agree to that? The only way that this thing is going to be adopted is if it wins on its own terms. So I think on the contrary, in the early days of Bitcoin, um, the reason why it has it spread in many circles wasn't was certainly not because banks adopted it. It was because it grew on the black market. Um, you know, there are ways around the financial system in, in countries like Indonesia and the Philippines and Nigeria and Venezuela. And that's where you see activity and people adopting Bitcoin, not at the banks. I mean, the United, in the United States, Bitcoin's at $11,000, and it wasn't even until a couple of days ago that banks even were allowed by the U.S. government to conceivably even hold Bitcoin for their customers. So banks have played zero role in this, and there's, there's actually a slogan. It's a little profane, but the slogan in Bitcoin is Bitcoin because fuck banks. I mean, the, banks are not supposed to be part of the, the future of money. I mean, I personally think How do you explain your bank has over 400 cryptocurrency companies as customers in Which the United bank? States. Signature Bank. How do you ex- how do you explain the uh, Millennium Bank as uh, who, who has hundreds of cryptocurrency companies as customers in the United States? There are over 600 companies that are banked in the United States by at least three mid market banks, and then there's a bunch on the big banks. How do you explain that? Obviously, yes, there are many banks that service the cryptocurrency industry. Well, Silvergate came out last week and said, wow, this cryptocurrency thing's awesome. They have they have over 400 customers as well. Yeah, but the success again, the success of Bitcoin is not is not because of banks like that. This is you have to understand the long term goal of this technology is to allow people to be their own bank. Uh, And look, in 100 years, will there be banks? Of course, there'll be banks because not everybody's going to want to. Uh, be a self custody, you know, do self custody. They're going to want to hire people and pay them to hold on to some of their assets. And you're already seeing what what the beautiful part is with Bitcoin, you're already seeing companies like Casa come out and help you do that on your own. So you don't have to go to a bank. And I think those solutions are going to be easier and easier and easier as we move forward. Um, But to suggest that like Bitcoin has been successful because of financial regulation and banking, I think is really dishonest. I mean, Bitcoin's been successful despite all that stuff. I, mean, I, I would fundamentally disagree. I would like to plot the price of Bitcoin versus the number of banks that have adopted it. 
And uh, we can do that at another time. Like- I think you may have a very American-centric view of this. I mean, again, remember when Bitcoin doubled in price from 3000 to 6000 that was when it was banned by the world's largest dictatorship in China. So, I mean, no bank was allowed to do anything officially. You could go to a freaking political prison camp if you want. Yeah, but that all was offshore to Hong Kong and then eventually got offshore to Singapore. Exactly, because Bitcoin is a global borderless technology that can't be controlled. Agreed. Love it. So so the more that you guys try to de-anonymize what's happening on the chain and service governments and corporations to help them control the network, that's bad for Bitcoin. That hurts its value proposition, just to go back to the motion. Disagree completely. I think that in a realistic world where there are 200 governments that are have very strong history of financial controls that have woken up to cryptocurrencies and that they are going to do stuff and they are doing it. And they're working with the Financial Action Task Force, the BATF, who I deal with constantly. I mean, this is not going away. So we can take a very philosophical view with it. And I'm 100% aligned with you, Alex. I'm 100%. We should be able to have anonymous transactions all the time. But that's just not the world what we live in. And so what we need to do is broker a conversation with the regulators and preserve financial privacy as much as possible. So for example... Wait, wait, just to, I have to respond to that piece. Um, I agree with you. This is not going away. It would be very naive to think that governments or corporations are going to look at Bitcoin and just sort of say, oh, whatever, we'll just let it run its course. They're going to attack it. They're going to try and control it, right? You and I have a different philosophy. You say we should negotiate. And maybe you'll be right. Maybe in a handful of countries, maybe in Denmark, maybe in Switzerland, maybe even in the in the grand old United States of America, maybe you'll find sympathetic regulars, regulators that are willing to actually negotiate with you and protect the rights of citizens. I'm not even going to say that that's Switzerland happens to be, by the way, one of the most uh, restrictive regimes in the planet around cryptocurrency, just so you know. Well, that's that's not good for your argument then, because there's only a handful of advanced democracies in the world where citizens have the right and ability to push back on government overregulation and to actually protect themselves. Those would be in Northern Europe. You would find a couple of them in South America and in East Asia, Canada, United States, Australia, etc. You know as well as anyone else that there's only... Um, a few hundred million people who live in these kind of countries. Most of the world lives under dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. So they're not going to be able to negotiate with their rulers anything. There will be no digital privacy in their future. So I would argue that for the for humanity, from a global perspective, the, the, the answer is not to try and negotiate. The answer is to make technology that makes chain analysis and financial surveillance impossible. So that's what HRF is doing. We're trying to create an open source software fund to make technologies like CoinSwap possible that destroy link heuristics so that you guys won't be able to do your job anymore. That's the goal. So I would say to anyone who, who wants to promote Bitcoin and wants to see Bitcoin succeed in the future, they should support people like Chris Belcher, who ultimately are going to bring an end to the blockchain analytics industry. That That's the goal. Okay, gentlemen, let's switch gears just a little bit. So I remember seeing Alex debate with the gentleman from Ellipsis at the mainnet event at by Mazari. And so there was a discussion about future privacy mechanisms coming on board. So the question is, will built-in privacy mechanisms such as Taproot render financial surveillance tech useless? If so, what business decision will be made by blockchain analysis firms to stay relevant? And so I think there's two parts to this, right? So the first question is, how soon is Taproot coming? And 
whether that will basically render blockchain analysis not very useful. We don't need and... to approve for CoinSwap, just so you know. Okay. Okay. So it's basically same question, right? But then the question number two is, I guess maybe this is more for you than Dave. When that happens, what blockchain analysis firms will be doing to stay relevant? Or, or are you guys not concerned with this privacy mechanism coming on board? I think we always have to be concerned. They're always going to find a new way. Like currently, I, I don't know what Dave's going to say. He probably can't. He probably can't reveal the full extent of what they're doing. But there's not a whole lot, as far as we know, with regard to tracing stuff on second layer Bitcoin technologies. Two examples would be Lightning and Liquid. Um, Liquid is less of a concern to me because it's kind of a corporate product, but it does use confidential transactions, which are not really traceable. So that's one thing that's kind of interesting. Um, I'm, less I'm less bullish on that just because it's kind of a corporate product. Again, it's not really a human rights tool. So I'm, I'm going to put that aside for a second. But Lightning Network is a different beast to surveil, as I'm sure D Dave can tell you. And it, it, you have to use a different, you can't use obviously chain heuristics. You have to look at like the pattern of data going across different nodes. It's sort of like the Tor network in the way you would try to manipulate it by taking ownership of like a, a large number of nodes in the network. So it's a different strategy. But I'm sure there's plans to do that, um, but they haven't really started yet. Uh, but that's how they'll adapt. So the, you know, as soon as um, Lightning becomes robust, you know, these chain analysis companies will try to adapt and they'll try to start taking the orders of their clients, whether it's the U.S. government or Coinbase or whatever, to try and identify, you know, help them identify people on Lightning. Just like people, there are companies that help the U.S. government try to identify people who are using the Tor internet browser. It's no different. But I, I just want to say that like what people are working on right now is to make Bitcoin itself more private uh, and, and less traceable. And it doesn't need any of these fancy upgrades. It can be done right now. So through a mix of Chomi and CoinJoins uh, and PayJoin and CoinSwap, in the next 12 to 18 months, you could see open source wallets that make chain analysis basically useless. So and we don't need Taproot for that. Taproot will make it much better uh, I think there's reason to believe that the Taproot upgrade, which, which has several different things in it, will make it much harder to, to identify what, what transactions are multi-signature transactions, which ones are single signature transactions. It'll make it harder to figure out what's a lightning payment, what's not. Um, so it'll be good, but we don't need that to fluster the, the current system. There's already really good work being done, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect them to give up. Maybe Dave can tell us about his plans for surveilling lightning. Dave, would you like to respond to that? Well, I'm not going to opine on the relative technical arguments around Taproot or the addition of Schnorr signatures into Bitcoin or Lightning Network. These are all clearly technical challenges, as is Monero. All I can say on that is we're just dealing in the in the world of where we at and regulatory compliance. Um, how do we make that as privacy preserving as possible? We work with the, you know, the Zcash team and Monero team almost every week. Uh, here's one thing. The existence of cryptocurrency analytics helps drive the innovation in privacy technologies. And that's a darn good thing. We want to help drive that, you know, that's that it, it's a give and take. 
which is we want to make sure that there's privacy technologies, just as people, not us, CypherTrace, but just as people. We want to make sure that there's as much privacy technology out there so that people have easy accessibility to it, fungibility around it. I mean, it's a good thing. I also think that making it technically hard for people to get to is also a good thing because the people who really need it will do it and dumb bad guys won't. Um, I don't want pedophiles getting access to it. I don't want people who are kidnapping people and extorting their families to get access to it. I don't want people who are selling weapons of mass destruction to blow people up, get access to it. But honestly, I think it's very important. I think it's good to have this debate around, you know, the dynamics of privacy and uh, the ability to de-anonymize certain things. But again, it's not about de-anonymizing people. It's allowing people, we're going to do it anyway, to give them tools. And also, you know, we provide restitution for people all the time who've had their stuff stolen. But I do like this dynamic of, you know, pushing the envelope on privacy. I think it's a great thing. That is in a way true. I mean, you could say that financial surveillance is good for Bitcoin and human rights because it forces people to become more private. But you have to understand that's a lot like saying that like the secret is, is that's a lot like trying to say that secret the secret police or the Stasi um, was good for people because it forced them to figure out better ways of speaking, uh, you know, in, in different secret languages. No, it's absolutely not, it's, Alex. It's, 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 about it's saying, not, that's it's not a really good argument, man. Alex, it's about saying the media, the open media is good. But remember, like you have to think about your right to privacy, right? So if you you have no um, really appreciable ex- expectation that you would have privacy if you speak something in a public forum like a park. Well, you have no expectation of privacy if you speak something in a public forum like a blockchain. So that's just a fact. And cryptocurrency tracing companies have... Nothing, you know, I mean, we're not adding anything to that. That's just what it is. You've made that decision to publish your transactions out there. Fine. Now, so, what so we're when doing I make a call, are, you, are you saying that, I, that, that that should be open for business? Or should, shouldn't that phone call be just restricted to me, the recipient, and the telecom company? Absolutely. Nobody intercepts your phone calls. Well, that's not true, though, because the U.S. government has done warrantless wiretaps on phone calls. Right. So what, what you guys are doing is warrantless financial wiretapping. I mean, that is absolutely not true, and you know it. Well, it's definitely true. You, you, don't have, you didn't get a warrant for looking at every single person's uh, data that you guys have in your data set. You don't need to. It's, no it's published on the Internet. Google has a massive data, leak, a data lake of every transaction that's been done across multiple blockchains. What are you talking about? It's public information. No, but that information is useless to you unless you've got a little bit um, of information about who, who started that transaction. Not what about who started it. It's not about any of that. It's about there's plenty of public resources that there's plenty of companies out there who are or Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrency service providers who publish their addresses and go like, here's our hot wallet. Here's our cold wallet. Here's how we tag our addresses. I mean, that stuff's all public. Gathering public information and consolidating in a format that helps people when they get ripped off, when there's financial crime, I don't think that's a bad thing. We can disagree. That's fine. I mean, I'm not expecting us to agree, but that's just my position on it is if we don't identify individuals, if we don't identify names, phone numbers, addresses, IP addresses, or any of that stuff about individuals, but we help people 
to get their money back when it's stolen or help governments to uh, basically agree to the social contract that we are in, which is we agree that terrorists is bad. We agree that stealing kids and, and raping them is bad. We agree that certain drug trafficking is bad. That's a social context that we're in. Then I think that's fine. So two points. Number one, just to finish the point about your argument that what you're doing, this new argument you presented at the end here, that what you're doing is actually good because it makes Bitcoin stronger. Privacy companies are already doing that. Every single privacy company in Bitcoin has a little research unit. So we don't need you or other people doing financial surveillance. We have people studying weaknesses in the blockchain. So we don't need you guys making money off the government and other clients. We already have got a protective mechanism. So that I don't think that argument um, is very good. But to go back to the warrantless wiretapping piece, um, you, you're, you're right. Like in as much as, uh, you know, it's not like, I doubt you guys are going to get hired to go after somebody who posted on Twitter, their address, and then told someone else where they sent it. I mean, you don't need to hire a chain analysis company for that. What you would need to hire a chain analysis company for is if you need more information than what's just available from sitting on my couch on the blockchain. Uh, if I can just sit here and use a block explorer, you don't need to pay a lot of money to a chain analysis company. The only reason I would need to pay any money to a company like yours is for special traits and tax and information that you guys have, relationships with different exchanges and things like that. If, if I could just do it, sit here at home and look at the blockchain, I'm not going to pay a big contract for that. People are paying you for your ability to like leverage relationships. As you said, you have this like big database of like, addresses that are relevant on exchanges and things like that. So again, you guys, I, I, I think, you know, when you do your work, you are part and parcel of a process that violates privacy in countries where it is constitutionally protected by giving information about financial flows to the government or other authorities without judicial process. I mean, that's just the way I view it. Maybe you disagree. I absolutely disagree with you, Alex, and that's fine to disagree. But I think knowing that funds flowed from one place to a, a, a commercial entity that is licensed in a jurisdiction that has a requirement to report to be able to know that it went there so that you can file yeah, but Bank Secrecy Act is only over 10,000 US. It's not, it doesn't cover small transactions. We don't have, that's fine. And you know, the other thing we have to talk so you're about- you're saying you don't, you refuse to take, are you going to say on record, you refuse to take any inquiries below the BSA limit? No, we don't, we don't do any of that. We don't, uh, by the way, also people don't hire us to say like, as you said, somebody hires you to chase this thing. Like that's not our business. Like you have some misconceptions about how the business works. So you would not be involved in uh, tracking criminal activity on the blockchain. What are you talking about? That's what, that's your value proposition. You said that people hire you to go and say, who's this guy and, and what are they doing and where are they doing it from? We generally. Well, no, they already know that. No, no, we already covered this. They know everybody who is on their, who's one of their customers. They need to know which of them is associated with the address that you guys are going to figure out. So as a team, you'll work together to de-anonymize these people. We don't work as a team. We give that information to the victims of theft. You don't work as a team. Marvel. You're paid by a company. You guys are a profit-making business. Of course you work as a team. I mean, you could call it anything you want, but you're, it's a collaboration. I mean, they take your services, they take the information they have on their clients, and then they pinpoint people. 
and then they freeze the accounts of those people. So for example, like if I was Binance and I, and I wanted to freeze the accounts of anybody using Wasabi, a Bitcoin mixing service, uh, I could work with a chain analysis company to figure that out. And then through a chain analysis company, I can freeze the accounts of people who are using privacy tech. But that's that's teamwork, man. I mean, that's I well, you, you could. Work. Nobody does that, but yes, that's theoretically possible. Finance definitely did that. It's on record. They froze the accounts of people who are using Wasabi in their service. Now it was in conjunction with the Plus Token scam, but I'm just saying. Right. I mean, where people lost over five hundred million dollars. So if you want to argue that people should be able to lose five hundred million dollars and have no recourse to any kind of recovery, any kind of legal recourse, they can't have um, the courts operate on it, then that's fine. I mean, that's your point No, they of view. should be able to do it without, look, um, look, it's kind of like, like- a, How would they do okay. it without any course of so evidence? Here's just a, a meta story. After 9-11, we were led to believe that we needed to give up our rights uh, with the Patriot Act so that the government could do things like mass surveillance to stop terrorists. In reality, these programs have violated the privacy of millions of Americans and have caught very few bad guys, if any. There was a story in the New York Times last year that said after hundreds of millions of dollars of expenditures in warrantless mass surveillance programs, basically zero people had been caught. Okay, so what had happened is the violation, the mass violation of privacy and human rights of millions and millions of people with no benefit to society. This is what mass surveillance does. Okay. So I think that we can solve financial crime and terrorism, and we can fight kidnappings and anything we want through a, a, a reasonable, you know, like uh, investigative police work and detective work. We sh they should but not have access now. to. They should not have access to mass financial surveillance. It's no, not mass financial just... surveillance, Alex. It's basically saying like, here's wait, 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 a phone. But you, wait, but no, but you're 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 even denying that you even know the names on these on these accounts. So of course it's mass. So of course it's mass surveillance. You 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 can't even differentiate who's who according to you. Blockchain, it's going to be mass surveillance. Put your stuff on on, on out on the internet. It's going to be mass surveillance. I mean, put your stuff on Facebook. It's going to be mass surveillance. Yes, yeah, so don't do mass surveillance. It's bad for Bitcoin. Just stop. It would be way better if you guys didn't do what you're doing. I mean, we'd be, okay. it'd be a well, much better world. So we'll stop and we'll let the you know the Russians do it. No, the Russians are already doing it, but the Americans don't need to do it. That's the difference between the Americans and the Russians. Come on, man. Here's the thing. Like, let's also look at the future. Like, when you look at the travel rule, what's going on with FATF, what's going on with FinCEN, I mean, this is mouse nuts compared to that. So let's get engaged on the real issue here, which is that's a million times more invasive than what we're talking about, because we're basically saying your money went to this exchange or that exchange or went through that money laundering service. Wait, That's so you're it. saying that you guys will not, I don't understand. You're saying you oppose the travel rule legislation. You, you won't work with clients who ask you to help with that. What, what do you mean? I'm just saying that like, you got to compare like what's going on now to what's happening. We need to get together as an industry and work on this and not be divisive about it. Cause there's a reality out there, which is governments have woken up to cryptocurrencies and we need to work together to preserve. I'm on your side. We need to get cryptocurrencies to be protected as much as possible. But having an argument that cryptocurrency analytics that provides the recourse for people to recover their funds that got scammed, that also are doing, you know, in some extents, bad stuff. That's well, I, I think something that's important for the listeners to understand is that FATF 
is one of these alphabet soup organizations like the UN Human Rights Council, the World Health Organization. FATF is not just Europe and America. Okay, FATF has Turkey, the Chinese Communist Party, Russia on it. So FATF is going to be a very authoritarian organization that's going to turn the screws on financial privacy. There's going to be no negotiating with FATF. In the far future, FATF will have every possible law on the books to try and stop any sort of financial flow that it can't identify. Except, of course, if you're part of the Davos elite, in which case they aren't going to prosecute you. So we'll continue to have this absurd double standard system where the rich get richer and never go to prison and middle class and poor people get in trouble. That's like the ultimate goal of FATF is to preserve the existing system with cryptocurrencies. So that's why instead of- Have you of, attended a FATF meeting in person? Are you sure about that? Well, I, well, no, no, no. I, all, all I said is that FATF includes dictatorships on it. So I know I'm an expert in dictatorships. The objective was to keep people poor. I think you said that. Yeah, I'll stand by that for sure, 100%. It is to keep people like it is to keep people like Erdogan in Turkey and Xi Jinping in China and the rulers that be in power. FATF is is no different than any other alphabet soup organization in that in that context. And just to just to finish the point, this is why it's so important to not practice financial surveillance and blockchain analytics. Like don't like don't don't give them any more help than they are than make them do it by themselves. Instead, spend your career and time and energy helping make Bitcoin more free and private. And so we can fight these people. The good news is open source Bitcoin code is unstoppable. So once CoinSwap, for example, gets widespread enough, I mean, there's not a whole lot they can do. So, I mean, now is the time to really double down and invest in this area, as opposed to helping governments track people down, which is just not super helpful and it's bad for Bitcoin. Well, I, I, I mean, agree on, on tracking people down, but I mean, I think unless you've actually attended a FATF meeting and met with the people and understand actually how the organization works and have dealt with them and re- recognize that FATF is not a regulator, right? FATF has no data. FATF is a, is a group of people who meet in Paris once every, you know, six months to talk about this stuff and help set regulatory uh, constraints for com- countries, they all have to implement their own regulations. Yes, and one of the representatives of FATF is running a concentration camp system in China with millions of Muslims in it. These are not nice people, my friend. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. FATF is pers- not running a concentration camp in China. China might be running one, but FATF is not. No, no, no. Me, meaning, no, meaning, no, no, no. Just to be clear, one of the delegates in that room is is that person it part belongs to a political party that's running a concentration camp in China. Yeah, the United States who bombed Syria too. So, I mean... Sure, yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to defend there's the U.S. government, trust me. There's 190 countries who are part of FATF. Yes, there's 37 members and nine... Or, and then there's two who represent a whole bunch of other areas, but you basically got large-scale representation from 190 countries. So yes, every bad thing that has ever been done certainly has been done by a member country of FATF. That is true. Well, FATF, is, it's, FATF of course, is an enemy of Bitcoin. So anything that helps FATF is bad for Bitcoin. So They're not an enemy of Bitcoin, but I'm, I don't agree with their approach, just so you, you know. You think FATF is a friend of Bitcoin? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're a friend either, right? Wouldn't say they're a friend either. I mean, I think there's a lot more friendly organizations. I think the importance of engaging with FATF is to be able to give them a better perspective on how to accomplish their goals without breaking the way that cryptocurrency works. And so 
my engagement with them, look, I don't get paid to work with that. You know, I do it because I want to make sure cryptocurrency thrives and we all get it. And, but there's a reality, right? Like someone's got to work with the, with these guys. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you're a good person or a good organization. I mean, dude, you can, you can do as much financial surveillance as you want. I just, I'm not going to let you stand here and say it's good for Bitcoin. I mean, you can go, you can work for, you could be a weapons contractor for all I care. I mean, I don't care. Yeah, but I mean, if it, if so, David, it, Alex, here, I, I want to reel back the debate just a little bit. So, I want to bring in an audience question, and then I want you guys to put in your concluding remarks. So, the audience question is: Someone is wondering, what is the difference between the various blockchain analysis companies out there in terms of the sort of services they provide? How does your company differentiate yourself from the others? So, there you go, Dave. Well, thank you. Uh... The difference between various blockchain analysis companies, I think I, it's going to be the background, their focus, how they work with the open community, how they work with regulators, what is the actual foundation of the company. So did they come from a, a cypherpunk Bitcoin background and are trying to negotiate the nasty waters between regulators and our vision of an open cryptocurrency or are they just simply trying to do analysis and make money on it? Okay, perfect. Well, thank you, Dave. So Alex, I'll let you go first with your concluding remarks. Sure. So um, again, you know, we talk about the motion here. We talk about the fact that I'm saying that blockchain analytics companies are bad for Bitcoin, uh, or as I like to call them, financial surveillance companies. Ultimately, the reason why I say they're bad for Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin, I, I do agree, is many things. I mean, Bitcoin is the price. Bitcoin is the adoption. Bitcoin is people being able to use it. I agree about all these things. But the ultimate reason why blockchain analytics companies are bad for Bitcoin is because they're tools of the very mechanisms and organizations and institutions that Bitcoin was meant to disrupt. They are relics of a previous age where a small group of people controlled the economy. They are the claws and hooks of this, this institution in, in its dying days, trying to hold on to its power. They are an arm of the Chinese Communist Party, an arm of the U.S. government, uh, an arm of Mr. Putin. They are, they are like the way, one of the ways, one of the key ways in which these dictators and, and other kinds of governments and corporations are trying to apply their old methods of surveillance and control onto a new kind of technology. So undoubtedly, Bitcoin and blockchain analytics companies are bad for Bitcoin. If they didn't exist, these dictators and corporations and governments would have a harder time understanding what's happening and Bitcoin would be a stronger tool for freedom. And that's going to be true in 10 years, 30 years, 100 years. They, they, you know, Bitcoin, again, is number go up technology. It does not need a marketing department. It does not need... Uh, compliance to do well. Bitcoin survives in spite of compliance. Bitcoin is built to thrive outside of government control. Bitcoin is built to thrive literally if it's illegal. That's where it's supposed to shine is if it's not allowed. So we don't need compliance. We don't need blockchain analytics companies. All they are are tools of those in power. And Bitcoin exists as a tool for the powerless. So blockchain analytics companies, or as I like to call them, financial surveillance companies, are bad for Bitcoin. Okay, Dave, the floor is yours for the concluding remark. Thank you, sir. 
Um, Alex, thank you for so much for uh, the great conversation today. I would argue the counterpoint, which is uh, financial analytics, you could call it financial surveillance, but big blockchain analytics are actually crucial for the survival of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies moving forward. What is important is to preserve user privacy as much as possible. And I think that, that we can preserve user privacy. We do it today. I see no movements against it. It is about empowering Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to flourish in a world which certainly is controlled by financial institutions and governments, but we need Bitcoin to flourish and to survive and to thrive. And Bitcoin analytics and blockchain analytics in broader case do not jeopardize financial privacy of anybody. They help people recover their funds. They help us comply with regulations. They help us deal with the reality of it, which is we're not going to overthrow the financial institutions. I wish we were, but we're not going to. So let's thrive inside of the community and let's create a world where we can still have P2P payments that are safe, secure, and private. But when they go to the fiat payment rails, let's make sure that it's easy and safe for people to do it and that everybody agrees and we end up with a very safe uh, system that has financial privacy for P2P payments. But when you get to the rails, there's going to be some amount of KYC and, and analytics, and that's just a fact. Great. Thank you. So listeners, we would love to hear from you and to have you join the debate via Twitter. Definitely vote in the post-debate poll, and also feel free to leave your comments. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes of the Blockchain Debate Podcast. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. Thank you very much, Dave and Alex, for joining today's show. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having this great debate. Thanks again to Alex and Dave for coming on the show. To summarize, Alex believes that blockchain analysis companies either conduct financial surveillance or enable financial surveillance by others, which he believes is a huge net negative for society. He thinks this is especially bad for citizens of countries with repressive regimes. These companies indirectly harm Bitcoin users and are tools for Bitcoin-hating governments. Therefore, they're bad for Bitcoin. Dave believes that without blockchain analysis firms, governments will fatally attack Bitcoin. And even if that does not happen, governments will build out these blockchain analysis technologies themselves anyway. So blockchain analysis companies have a chance to work with them, while somehow helping them do the right thing in preserving financial privacy for quote-unquote the good people. And these efforts will make Bitcoin stronger as a result. What was your takeaway from the debate? Don't forget to vote in our post-debate Twitter poll. This will be live for a few days after the release of this episode. And feel free to say hi or post feedback for our show on Twitter. If you like the show, don't hesitate to give us 5 stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to this. And be sure to check out our other episodes with a variety of debate topics. Bitcoin's store of value status, the legitimacy of smart contracts, DeFi, POW versus POS, and so on. Thanks for joining us on the debate today. I'm your host, Richard Yan, and my Twitter is Genso09, G-E-N-T-S-O-09. Our show's Twitter is Block Debate. See you at our next debate.